Welcome to Men of the Word. It is a, a great joy that we have this evening to focus on another component of the doctrine of salvation, and it's the component that we are calling preservation. Preservation. Now, to set the context, I, I want to look a little bit into history as to how this doctrine was viewed. Back in 1610, the followers of Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius produced a five-point summary of their opposition to the theology being taught in the Dutch Reformed Church. This summary, these five points, the summary was entitled The Remonstrance of 1610, and its signatories were called the Remonstrants. Now, perhaps you've heard of that. Uh, today, the, the terminology would be to call them Arminians as followers of Jacobus Arminius. But at that time, they were called the Remonstrants. And their opposition to the teaching in the Dutch Reformed Church followed or, or, or focused on these five points. First, they disagreed with the teaching and emphasized conditional election. They also emphasized universal atonement. They, they taught and affirmed a kind of depravity that, that, uh, that they did in order to make sure they weren't going to be called Pelagians. So they did affirm serious depravity. They asserted what they called resistible grace. And then number five, and this is the point that pertains to our discussion they emphasize that the perseverance of the saints is not at all certain. And so you could summarize that as, uh, as an af- affirmation or an assertion of uncertain perseverance. And under this fifth pillar of their, of their objections to the teaching in the Dutch Reformed Church, they asserted this. They stated that they who are united to Christ by faith are thereby furnished with abundant strength and succor sufficient to enable them to triumph over the seductions of Satan and the allurements of sin. Nevertheless, they may, by the neglect of these suckers, fall from grace and dying in such a state may finally perish. This point was started at first doubtfully, but afterward positively as a settled doctrine, end quote. In other words, as they emphasized or expressed their disagreement with the Dutch Reformed Church's emphasis on the perseverance of the saints, they emphasized that, yes, indeed, on the one hand, Christ has given to all those who have believed in him all the resources they need to persevere in the saints, to endure to the end. However, they asserted at first with hesitancy, but then as a, as a strong emphasis of doctrine that these believers, if they do not maintain the, the, the discipline, if they do not take advantage of the resources provided to them in Christ, they could fall from grace and dying in such a situation, they would perish for eternity. Now, these five theses required a response from the leadership of the Dutch Reformed Church. These, these followers of Arminius had petitioned the church to approve their teaching, and so the Reformed Church had to respond. The Synod of Dort was convened in 1618, some eight years later, to consider this petition. And this Synod of Dort gathered 90 theologians not only from uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, but also from all over Europe to, to consider the assertions being made by the remonstrants. They gathered for six months to debate these articles, and in response, they published what is known as the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort. And so if you look at the five articles of the remonstrants, conditional election, universal atonement, serious depravity, resistible grace, and uncertain perseverance. The canons of Dort responded to each of these five articles with what they believed after having searched the scriptures, what they believed were the biblical responses. They affirmed unconditional 
election. They affirmed limited atonement or, or efficacious atonement, you could say. They affirmed total depravity, irresistible grace, and number five, perseverance of the saints. Now, these canons of Dort, these five responses to the five articles of the remonstrance, it came to be known as the five points of Calvinism, and perhaps you can already see in those five points the letters that would make the word tulip. If you would just rearrange these in a little bit of a different order and begin with total depravity, you would have T-U-L-I-P. That's where we get tulip from, the canons of Dort. But it's important to note that Calvinism, or the, the teaching that arose out of the Reformation, was not essentially built on these five pillars from the start. Uh, There's much more to the Reformed teachings, especially as articulated by John Calvin and those with him. It's more than just tulip. It's more than just these five points. Rather, the canons of Dort and these five points grew out of a response to the five articles of what we would know today as Arminian theology. It was the Arminians, the remonstrants, who first articulated five points. But we want to look at this fifth response to the remonstrants, the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean and how was it articulated by those who responded to the followers of Jacobus Arminius? Well, in that, in that document known as the Canons of Dort, They have a heading called of the perseverance of the saints. And under that heading are various paragraphs of response to the remonstrance doubt and rejection of the concept of the perseverance of the saints. And in one of those articles, article eight, it states the the doctrine of perseverance with these words. And this is a wonderful statement and perhaps one of the best statements on the doctrine of perseverance. The canons of Dort read as follows here, quote, Thus, it is not in consequence of their own merits or strength, but of God's free mercy, that they, speaking of believers, do not totally fall from faith and grace, nor continue and perish finally in their backslidings, which with respect to themselves is not only possible, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, it is utterly impossible since his counsel cannot be changed nor his promise fail. Neither can the call according to his purpose be revoked nor the merit intercession and preservation of Christ be rendered ineffectual, nor the sealing of the Holy Spirit be frustrated or obliterated, end quote. Well, what these theologians debated 400 years ago are, are still issues that many Christians face today. They're questions, and these questions are often very sincere in nature. They're questions about the perseverance and, and the security of salvation, And these questions undoubtedly cause a a great deal of anxiety among Christians. Questions such as these, can a believer fall from grace and, and lose his salvation? Is endurance in the faith dependent upon the believer's effort to keep himself saved? Or is it dependent upon God's effort to preserve him? Is it a mixture of either one? What about the countless number of people who once professed Christ as their Savior and perhaps even lived for a while in, in, a, in a commitment to, to the things of God and in attendance of, of, of a local church and affirmation of, of strong biblical theology. But, but now when we look at their lives, it's clear, it's evident that they spurn the same Christ they once accepted. Moreover, there's this question. If a believer knows that his salvation is eternally secure, will that not actually contribute to to, to his proneness to fall back into sin and to not be watchful or vigilant 
over his life knowing that his destiny has already been determined? Well, these are all very good questions, and we're going to look at this in our session uh, on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Well, as we get into it, we have to once again begin with the, the key terms and their definitions. We must identify those key terms that are often associated with this, with this doctrine and then look at a, at a proper definition so that we can remove misunderstandings and instead move forward with a, with a biblical worldview on these issues. The three, the three terms that we're going to look at this, this session are these, the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, and then eternal security. Preservation, perseverance, and eternal security. Let's begin with the preservation of the saints. What does that mean? The preservation of the saints. How are we to understand that? Well, when we talk about this doctrine, and as, as I've already mentioned it in, in the, the canons of Dort, the fifth article was entitled, The Perseverance of the Saints. And normally when we discuss issues related to the security of salvation and whether believers can lose their salvation, often it is put under this, this heading, The Perseverance of the Saints. But I believe it is best to begin not with the perseverance of the saints, but with the concept of the preservation of the saints, the preservation of the saints. We have to begin there because it begins ultimately with God. We've looked at that so many times already throughout our study that salvation originates and salvation terminates in God and his sovereignty, his power, his love and his grace and the endurance of the believer from his conversion to glorification also depends upon God's sovereignty, his will, his activity, his love, and his grace. And so we must begin with preservation. So what does it mean when we speak of the preservation of the saints? Well, preservation refers to God's unfailing work to sustain the faith of those whom he has made alive by the Spirit, whom he has united with Christ. It's his work to sustain the faith of those whom he has regenerated and has unified with Christ to sustain that faith all the way from conversion to glorification. That's what we're referring to when we talk about the preservation of the saints. It is God's work that he does with those who have been made alive by his spirit, united with Christ. It's the work that he does to unfailingly bring them from that regeneration all the way to their destination of glorification, to their full and perfect conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology gives this definition. And although he calls this the perseverance of the saints, I think we can use this as a definition that refers to the preservation of the saints because of how he gives this definition. Notice what he states. He writes this perseverance or, or preservation may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. End quote. Now notice the emphasis in this definition is on God's work. It is on that continuous activity of the Holy Spirit at work in the believer to ensure that the good work that God began will be brought to its intended completion. Now, where do we find this taught in Scripture? For all of our doctrine, we can't affirm it simply on the basis of logic or personal preference. It must arise out of the clear teaching of Scripture, and that's what we find with this doctrine. Notice the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, he states this, All that the Father gives me 
will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, that that I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now you can hardly find more definitive words in support of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints than this text. In fact, you find so much here. We could, we could take the next hour unpacking this text, but you can probably already see it here. Notice the absolute terminology that Jesus uses in these words. He talks about all, all, and nothing, and everyone. And he talks about certainly, and he says, I myself. And what we see here is that, first of all, in the first half of the equation, we see that Christ will receive all whom the father gives to him. Not one will fall away. Not one will be left behind. All that the father gives to him will be received by Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we see this commitment. We see this as part of the father's will and Christ's will that Christ will raise to glory all whom he receives. That's the second half of the equation. And Christ makes it very clear here that this is all dependent not upon human energies and human will, but it is dependent upon the will of the Father and the will of Christ himself. Christ will receive all whom the Father gives to him, and Christ will raise to glory all whom he receives. Another text is found in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, where Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, Jesus is very clear here that all true believers, his sheep, his sheep know Jesus's voice and he knows them. That's very different than what we read in Matthew 7, where he says of those who even performed miracles and made great claims to be followers of Jesus. And Jesus will say to them on the, uh, on, on the day of judgment, uh, uh, depart from me. I never knew you. But here, Jesus says, I know my sheep. I know them and they follow me. That is a characteristic of a true sheep. The, the sheep follow Christ. He says, I will give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And and notice this. He says, first of all, that no one will snatch them out of Christ's hand. Christ's sheep are kept safe and secure in the hands of Christ. But more than that, he also says that Christ's sheep are kept safe and secure in the hands of the father as well. There's this double emphasis. There is this There is this emphasis to the second power here that they are safe in Christ's hands and in the Father's hands. This is what we call the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. We could look at Paul's prayer in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 to 9 where where he writes, he records the essence of his praying to the Lord regarding the the, the members of the Corinthian church. Now step back for just a moment and remember who these Corinthians were. Many of them were acting very immaturely. There there were many engaged in, in division and strife. There was the abuse of the Lord's Supper. There were great abuses of the spiritual gifts. There was immorality in the church, lawsuits and, and the like. Nonetheless, Notice what Jesus, uh, what Paul prays to Jesus with respect to his, his understanding 
of their preservation. First Corinthians one, four to nine. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the description that he has when he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Could look at Peter's statement in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, where he too gives a record of his thanksgiving to the Lord. And he writes this, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He goes on later in 1 Peter 5 verse 10 to say this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We could look at more texts, but these in themselves articulate very clearly that the preservation of faith is in the hands of the Savior. The preservation of faith is in the hands of Almighty God, the one who arranged salvation, the one who accomplished redemption, and the one who applies it to our life, not just in the beginning, but throughout our Christian lives and even to the end. This preservation, therefore, we can say is Trinitarian in nature, and I hope you can already see this as you reflect upon the sessions that we've already studied in this series on the mercies of God. It is grounded, first of all, in the unchanging love, in the infinite power and the saving will of the Father. This is, this is the design of God the Father to arrange salvation, to make it come to pass. And his will is not ambiguous in nature. It is very specific. Secondly, it is grounded in the merits of Christ's saving work and the efficacy of his present intercession. In other words, that when, when Christ died on the cross, he did not die for an ambiguous people, a, a faceless people. He died thinking of individuals. He died for his sheep. And as he died, he did not die in such a way that the, the accomplishment of his redemption would somehow fall short of its ultimate design. Moreover, you have his present intercession communicated in texts like Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look at this uh, next week. But the, the present intercession of Christ indicates that he is able as our great intercessor, as our great high priest, to save to the utmost, to save forever those who draw near to Christ in faith. And thirdly, it is grounded in the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that in that session on the sealing of the Spirit, how he has given to us as the Erebone, as that pledge, that down payment that indicates God's intent, his will to bring the final payment on the day of redemption, on the day when we are brought to glory. That is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. God keeps them by his power. Now, how does that relate then to the 
perseverance of the saints? What's the relationship between preservation and perseverance? What's the difference here? Well, if preservation looks at salvation from the divine perspective, perseverance looks at salvation from the believer's perspective. Divine sovereignty, God's love, God's infinite power do not negate the believer's responsibility. In other words, his preservation of the faith of every true believer does not negate, does not cancel out the responsibility of the believer to persevere. These two things, as much as it might be difficult for us to to, to reconcile these two truths, these two things operate together in divine logic in wonderful beauty. The responsibility then of the saint, of the one who is regenerate and united to Christ, that responsibility to persevere is, is found in the repeated exhortations of Scripture that are made to believers to do just that, to endure to stand fast until the end, to persevere. And these texts are abundant as well. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, When Jesus says that, he is not contradicting his statements that he makes in John 6 or Matthew or John chapter, uh, John chapter 10. There's no contradiction. Rather, he is emphasizing the other side of the coin. He is emphasizing the need for preservation, for, for perseverance. In John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, we see these words. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus here was dealing with with crowds of, of followers, many of whom were following Jesus because they were attracted by the miracles. They were attracted by the loaves of bread. And there were many who were making claims, but Jesus recognized the reality of spurious faith. False claims, the kind of faith that is not uh, fiduciary in, in nature, that does not recognize that Jesus is the only way, the only hope for eternal life. And Jesus reminds them that it is those who continue, those who persevere, those who endure, who are the ones who have truly believed in Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says to Timothy the same exhortation in, in, in emphasizing the need for perseverance. He says this, 1 Timothy 4, 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will in, ensure salvation both for you and for those who hear you. We could look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, where we read this, this uh, description of the need for endurance. And I'll quote it at length because it, it, it describes so well the responsibility that is placed on every believer. 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Then he goes on to state, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Again, Scripture affirms both the the divine perspective of the preservation of the saints 
God's ultimate authoritative, unfailing keeping of the believer and scripture also emphasizes the responsibility of the believer to persevere and emphasizes that those who are truly saved will indeed endure to the end. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith states in Article 17.1. It says this, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that is, in his Son, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, there is an issue that immediately comes up at this point, and that is the issue of apostasy. What about those texts in Scripture that speak of a falling away from grace? And Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, where it speaks of those who have once tasted and then have fallen away, those who can never be renewed again unto repentance. How do we deal with those texts? How do we deal with the concept of apostasy? Well, we have to. I just want to say this, due to our limited time in this session, I'm going to leave that for what we will look at when we talk about the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. So know that I will get to the concept of apostasy in in two weeks. We'll put that off for right now. But as the Westminster Confession of Faith summarized, we will state this at this point, that those who are truly regenerate, those who have been united with Christ, will never fall from a state of grace in any kind of ultimate spiritual sense, that they will in the end endure and they will That is, all who have been regenerated and united with Christ, they will be eternally saved. Now, that brings up a third concept that must be be defined, and that's the concept of eternal security. We hear that a lot, perhaps even more than the concepts of the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. What does eternal security mean? Well, in itself... The term accurately describes the state of any true believer. His eternal destiny is secure. John 3.16, perhaps the most well-known verse of the New Testament, states this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't just say that they will perhaps receive eternal life at their death. No, these words speak to a present reality to anyone who truly believes that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. They have eternal life. In short, we could say it this way. As Matthew Barrett states, God will never permit anyone who has genuine faith in Christ to lose his or her salvation, end quote. We could call that eternal security. And understood correctly, it is a wonderful encouragement to the soul. But this term has been, has been misapplied especially by proponents of what we talked about several weeks ago, proponents of free grace theology. And as a result, this term today, if we use it today, can often be misunderstood and even taken to support an errant view of the nature of salvation. So even while on the one hand, it's a perfectly legitimate term that arises out of the doctrine of scripture, at the same time, we have to be careful with how we use this. Now, remember what we talked about with respect to proponents of free grace theology. Free grace theology denies any necessary role of repentance and conversion. It denies that repentance is a gift from God. It denies that repentance is a divine work in the life of the believer. It attributes repentance purely to a human work. 
Free grace theology also denies the necessary role of progressive sanctification. As we talked about several weeks ago, free grace theology says there is no actual sanctification that necessarily occurs as a consequence of conversion. It doesn't need to be there. And we could also say that free grace theology denies the, the necessity of, a, a, of, of a, a sinner to recognize that Jesus is Lord. You just need to acknowledge the fact that he lived, he died on the cross for sins, and, and, and that's enough. In turn, eternal security has been used by proponents of free grace theology to describe the confidence claimed by what is known as in their terms as the carnal Christian. That person who claims to have the forgiveness of sins, who claims to possess eternal life, yet remains just as always in love with his sin. So if you remember the graph that we looked at several weeks ago, when we talked about errors in sanctification, we looked at a graph similar to this one about the Christian life. That according to free grace theology proponents, the non-Christian is, is stuck in his sin, is enslaved to his sin. At some point, he can acknowledge Christ as Savior. His life need not change at all. There, there doesn't need to be any fruit whatsoever. He can remain enslaved to his sin. He can remain in love with his iniquity. And proponents of free grace theology just call that the carnal Christian. Now, perhaps a little bit later on, he'll, he'll decide to be more serious about the faith and decide to be more serious about service and, and get his act together and begin to learn and to grow and to put off sin and to put on virtue. But that's not necessary. And they call the, the state of that person who professes to have forgiven sins and who professes to have eternal life, they call that person the carnal Christian. They call that person eternally secure. That is a misunderstanding of the nature of the Christian life. It's a misunderstanding of the very clear teachings of scripture about the need for repentance, uh, about the inevitability of progressive sanctification, about the lordship of Jesus Christ, who cannot only be partially believed as a savior alone. John Murray says this, in order to place the doctrine of perseverance in proper light, we need to know what it is not. It does not mean that everyone who professes faith in Christ and who is accepted as a believer in the fellowship of the saints is secure for eternity and may entertain the assurance of salvation, end quote. Well, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but I hope you've gained a better understanding now of these three key conceptions when we talk about the doctrine of preservation, the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, and the concept of eternal security. We will deal with more in the weeks to come. But in the meantime, I want to, I want to pull these thoughts together and come up with several several principles which articulate our theology, our understanding of the doctrine of preservation. So let's look now at some eternal uh, essential characteristics. Number one, the doctrine of preservation is completely consistent with sola gratia. The doctrine of preservation is consistent with sola gratia. You remember that, that Latin term, sola gratia, it refers to by grace alone. It refers to the reality that salvation from beginning to end is always by grace alone and never through the merit, never through the worthiness of the one who is saved. Now, at the same time, even for believers who have affirmed that it is sola gratia that has saved them, they came to Christ because of sola gratia. And yet many believers can get in this idea as the flesh whispers to them. They can get this idea that, well, the, well, conversion to the faith may have been all of grace, the continuation in the faith is actually up to the believer. It's, it, it's dependent upon merit. It's dependent upon worthiness. But salvation was, is, and always sola gratia, by grace 
alone. And this includes the endurance of our faith to the end. It is by grace, never as a result of works. And so the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this doctrine best accords with what scripture teaches that salvation is by grace alone. Romans 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin and death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Not will be, but is. Romans 4.16, Paul says, For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And of course, Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. And that text relates not only to our coming to faith, not only to the gift of faith at that moment of conversion when God graciously bestows his unmerited mercy and grace and love upon us. That grace pertains to the endurance of, of our lives. It pertains to the keeping of that faith within us. It is by grace. Conversely, as Louis Burkhoff notes, quote, the denial of the doctrine of perseverance virtually makes the salvation of man dependent upon the human will rather than the grace of God. I like also what Augustine stated In his work on the gift of perseverance, he stated this in very apropos terms. He said this, thus, as he worketh that we come to him, so he worketh that we do not depart. Let me say that again. As he worketh that we come to him, so he worketh that we do not depart. And many Christians who affirm the first half of that and affirm that, yes, it was totally by grace that they came to faith will sometimes waver and have misunderstanding that the second half is the same. The same way that God saved us initially is the same way that he will save us ultimately, always by grace. Number two, the doctrine of preservation applies to the regenerate, not to the mere professors. A mere profession of faith bereft of fiducia faith does not punch one's ticket to heaven. We can see that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where Jesus even says that there are many who enter through the broad gate and many who are, who are on the broad road. Only a few enter through the narrow gate, the real gate, the true gate of salvation, and only few are on the narrow path that leads to life. And he goes on a few verses later to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes it clear that many will claim Christ, many will claim faith, but in reality, the real genuine believers will always be less than the professors. Matthew 13 talks about this as well in the parable of the soils. There is only one good soil, the soil that yields fruit. All the other soils are worthless. You have the example of Judas Iscariot, the greatest apostate, who never was a believer, yet looked exactly like one to such a degree that even at the Last Supper, even at the Last Supper, as Jesus gathered his disciples together there in the upper room, the disciples did not know who the traitor was. You have the prophecy of Paul in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 saying that in the last times, many will fall away from the faith. And that's not referring to true believers. That's referring to those false professors. And 1 John 2, 19 says very clearly, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says it very plainly. If you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, you will never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. Number three, the doctrine of preservation includes the participation of the believer. 
We've already looked at this, but let's review it again. God's power to preserve the believer enables and works in conjunction with the believer's effort to persevere. There is a necessary partnership that is involved in keeping the faith, but don't understand it as a 50-50 partnership. God is the ultimate author. He will make it come to pass, but he will work within you to do and to, to accomplish that good pleasure. And so we see this in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. We saw that with respect to sanctification, and the same applies here, where Paul, Peter sa- Paul says, work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work to his good pleasure. The same you could say about the perseverance of the faith. You could put it this way, persevere in your faith, for it is God who preserves you. As Murray says, preservation or perseverance, I should say, perseverance means the engagement of our persons in the most intense and concentrated devotion to those means which God has ordained for this saving purpose. Herman Bavink says it this way, Scripture speaks of the perseverance of the saints in the same way that it does about sanctification. It admonishes the believer to persevere to the end, to remain in Christ, in his word, in his love, to continue in the faith, not shifting, to be faithful to death. That leads to affirmation number four. The doctrine of preservation incorporates God's use of means. The doctrine of preservation incorporates God's use of means. He uses means to accomplish this. Now, what's interesting to note is that even though we we may affirm the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of their faith, we seldom ask the question, well, just how does God do that? And we must remember, God is a God of means. He, in his wisdom, uses means to accomplish his, his, his objectives, his goals, his prerogatives in a way that would bring greater glory to God and greater good to us. And so God, in the same way that he sovereignly elects sinners unto salvation, using the means of the preached gospel, so also he sovereignly keeps believers faithful to the end, and he achieves this also through means. Well, what are these means? What means does God use to preserve the believer? Watchfulness, the command for the believer to be vigilant, to be watchful. He uses his word as the believer studies scripture. That is a means used to preserve faith. He uses prayer. Vigilance in praying as a means on the believer's part to preserve faith. He uses the fellowship of the believers to preserve faith. He even uses church discipline to preserve the faith of true believers caught in in a habit of sin. He uses trials to preserve faith. He uses the intercession of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to preserve faith. And even he uses the warnings of scripture as a means to preserve faith. Again, quoting from Bavink, we read these words. The admonitions and threats that scripture addresses to believers, therefore, do not prove a thing against the doctrine of perseverance. They are rather the way in which God himself confirms his promise and gift through believers. They are the means by which perseverance in life is realized. It is precisely God's will by admonition and warning morally to lead believers to heavenly blessedness and by the grace of the Holy Spirit to prompt them willingly to persevere in faith and in love. Number five, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is never a license for sin. It is never to be seen as a license for sin. Paul says in Romans 6 verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may actually increase? So that after having come to Christ by grace, now we can continue in sin so that that grace would even increase. Paul says, may Geneta, God forbid, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
We could look to 1 John, especially 1 John 3 verses 9 and 10, but other texts in John as well, 1 John, where, where John talks about the one who practices sin and, and emphasizes the fact that the one who practices sin evidences the fact that God's seed was never in him. For no one who is born of God practices sin. No one who is born of God continues in carnality. No one who is born of God loves his sin today just as much as he did in the depth of his depravity before his conversion. John Murray says, it is not true that the believer is secure however much he may fall into sin and unfaithfulness. Why is this not true? It is not true because it sets up an impossible combination. It is true that a believer sins. He may fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods, but it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. And let me just say this. I would say that any, any person who says that he can come to Christ, he could claim Christ and then continue in sin without any regard whatsoever for the Christ who saved them has never understood. He has never truly placed faith in Jesus Christ. And any believer so-called today who looks at the doctrine of the preservation of, of the saints as an opportunity to indulge in sin, that professor must spend an incredible amount of time examining himself to see whether he is truly in the faith. And that's, if, if that's where you're at today, and, and you're one of those who says, hey, I've got, it all, I've got it all hammered out. My eternal destiny is secure. I am saved. Now I can go and I can, I can drink the rest of my life away. I can go and live with prostitutes. I can go and engage in pornography. I can go and do all these kinds of sins. My destiny is secure. I would say this, the fact that you, your conscience doesn't pang, that you feel such Freedom in that abandonment to sin is evidence of the lack of God's seed within you. Number six, the doctrine of preservation is based ultimately on the character of God, not of the believer. Let me say this again. The doctrine of preservation is based on the character of God, not on the believer. You see, the fact that you will one day enter glory is not based on your character, and it never has been based on your character. Not in the beginning, not in the end. It is based on the character of God. It is crucial to remember that our endurance to the end is not based on our own willingness, our own working, but it is based on the willingness and the working of God. You see, the keeping of believers in the faith is tantamount to the keeping of God's word from God's perspective. For God to keep believers is tantamount to his keeping of his promises. And as we know, it is impossible for God to lie. And so when he offers the promise of eternal life, that if you believe in my son Jesus and what he did on the cross, and if you flee to him as your only hope, he holds out the promise of eternal life and he says it is yours. And for God to revoke that would be a breaking of his promise and it would run utterly contrary to the nature of his character. Moreover, the preservation of believers, his preservation of those who do come to faith is synonymous with the preservation of his own omnipotence. If it is within his power to bring a dead sinner to faith, how much easier is it then to bring that sinner who has been made alive by his spirit to the ultimate goal? Look, he's already done the hardest. He's already raised you to life. Are you to say now that it's too difficult for him to bring you to the end? No, I like what Martin Luther says, and I agree with him when he says this, I would rather have my salvation in God's hands than my own. And I am glad that God says the same. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of salvation. 
We could look at the prayer of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 to 24 when, when Paul says that, that God will make you stand without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. There's no conditions there. There's no qualifications. It is a promise. Our preservation in the faith is based on the faithfulness of God. We could look at Romans 8 verses 29 to 30, that golden chain of salvation. There's no leakage when you go from predestination to glorification. No one is lost along the way. And that reaches its climax in Romans 8 verses 38 to 39, where Paul says, I am convinced. He says, this is a hill I would die on. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including you, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thomas Watson said, God's decree is the very pillar and basis on which the saint's preservation depends. That decree ties the knot of adoption so fast that neither sin, death, nor hell can break it asunder. Number seven, the doctrine of preservation leads to humility, confidence, and worship. Now, there are challenges to this doctrine because even within ourselves, there's this hunch there's this suspicion that this doctrine is simply too good to be true. Or we have this fear that surely this doctrine will lead believers to complacency, to, to, to not be vigilant. It'll lead them to pride, to think highly of themselves, or it'll lead to flagrant sin. And, and so we want to manipulate believers to do their part so that they get through to the end and avoid sin. But as I said, that is manipulation to the contrary. The potential for abuse of this doctrine does not cancel out its truthfulness in the, in, in the same way that abuse of God's love and abuse of God's patience does not cancel out his character. Now, any kind of abuse cannot be allowed for the church to neglect or to deny this precious truth. If we go back to the canons of Dort, they respond to this. And one of the articles that they write on the, preser- or on the perseverance of the saints, and they say this, this certainty of perseverance, however, is so far from exciting in believers a spirit of pride or of rendering them carnally secure that on the contrary it is the real source of humility filial reverence true piety patience in every tribulation fervent prayers constancy in suffering and in confessing the truth and of solid rejoicing in god so that the consideration of this benefit should serve as an incentive to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works, as appears from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. End quote. In other words, as we truly understand this doctrine of the preservation of true believers. When we truly understand it, it leads us to be motivated not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Motivated not out of the fear of loss, but out of the recognition of what we have already gained. It leads to comfort. It leads to the endurance in trials when we know that no matter how we may stumble at this particular moment, God remains steadfast. And our salvation is sure we can believe his promises. J.C. Ryle said this, and how good it is for us to reflect on this even in a day such as ours. He says this, banks may break and money make itself wings and fly away. 
But the man who has come to Christ by faith will still possess something which can never be taken away from him. Spurgeon said something similar when he said this. If I did not believe the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, I think I should be of all men the most miserable because I should lack any ground for comfort. How true that is. And as we truly, as we biblically understand this doctrine, it leads not to carnality. It leads ultimately to worship. There's a stanza in a hymn penned by James Small in 1866. You can find it today. It's been slightly adapted, but the hymn is called His Forever. And I love the first stanza. It reads like this. I've found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love. And thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which not can sever. For I am his and he is mine forever and forever. Amen.